My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the post-credit pod. Today we have yet another episode of the Falcon and Winter Soldier to dive into. Eric, I, I don't know how it happened because it feels like we just started, but we're almost done with the Falcon Winter Soldier, which like, does time even matter in the pandemic? I was going to say, I think that now because the pandemic is sort of ending and spring is here, time is just flying by at this point. March might have been after March lasted an entire year. Last March was pretty quick. <laughs> like yeah, it, it flew wasn't by. too bad. Like, can you believe but, we like it, it's only been so today is what, April 8th? It's only been like three weeks since the release of the Snyder Cut. Three weeks. Get- it feels like time is moving in its own complete separate universe and vortex that is not beholden to the world, the world, the rules of the world. That's for sure. And I'm sad to see the Falcon Winter Soldier Similar to go. Loki. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Similar to Loki. And, but I'm sad to see the Falcon and Winter Soldier go because then we got to wait till July 9th for Black Widow. Then we got to we got we got Loki in June, but you know there's gonna be a lot of downtime without any weekly Marvel content. And after being spoiled by WandaVision in this, I'm a little disappointed. I agree with you, but I actually just wrote a post for work this week about uh, all of the films that are set to come out in the next three months. And Brandon, we are eating good, my guy. Be sure we to have check that on, out on uh, Bro Bible, everybody. Uh, what is that? May twenty. We have on. Yes, please, please. On May twenty eighth, we have. Cruella and a Quiet Place Part Two. I might just go back to back in the same I day. Think that's a great call. Crush it. I, I'm getting my second dose um, May third, so I'm planning on a Quiet Place Two being my first, my re- glorious return to movie theaters. Everyone, clear the way. And then we got Fast Nine, June twenty fifth. Uh, there's something else in June. We got Mortal Kombat in like two weeks, so it's going to be a glorious after a month. After a year of starvation, we're going to be eating. <laughs> we'll have enough to keep the post-cred pod going. That's for sure. And I know our listeners oh, yeah. out there are like, bullet dodged. Yeah, there we go. But before we hop into this week's analysis, evaluation, review, and just snarky comments for the Falcon and Winter Soldier, as always, we got to hit the trending news of the week. Uh, top of the line, Ray Fisher finally kind of gave a public interview about all of his allegations and claims and, and conflict with Warner Brothers, which frankly I've been waiting for because I, clearly Joss Whedon has proven himself to be a huge, toxic, hostile piece of shit. But we just never knew much of the specifics of Ray Fisher's claims. And so for him to be able to talk openly and really provide some specific detail, I think very much helps his cause. Because now I'm like, wow, that sounds bad for example A, B, and C. Right? Like now I have to ask myself, as I read this really in-depth piece that laid out everything that he, like re went into the stuff that he said, but it also shed new light on new things. And the number one thing that I asked myself is, did Joss Whedon intentionally try to tank this film? Because when you hear no, some but of he's the, horrible. But when you hear some of the quotes that he said, where he allegedly threatened to make Gail Godot specifically look bad, and that is exactly what she did in that famed Kal-El no line. Like you, you read shit like that and then you put that together with what we got on screen and it's like you almost wonder if his ego was so rampant that, it, that he almost tanked the film on purpose at this point. That was the first thing I asked. The next thing I asked is, does Warner need to clean house again? 
I mean, with Walter Hamada there, who was not in charge of DC films when Justice League was going down, he took over January. Fisher has looped him into it now, though. So now he, I don't. He he has, but that is one where I think we need a little bit uh, of nuance to what's going on. I believe Ray Fisher. I, I believe a lot of his claims. But Walter Hamada was not in a position of power at DC Films until well after the theatrical version of Justice League came out. Now, does that preclude him from doing any of the things uh, that, that Ray Fisher said in terms of trying to protect certain individuals? No, of course not. But it, it seems to me that perhaps he's getting his feet wet in a situation he didn't even understand he was walking into. But, you know, Jeff John's no longer really that involved. He's certainly not in the kind of lead role he was in before. Uh, Kevin Tuchiara, who I know I'm butchering that, he's gone because of his own scandal. Uh, Toby Emmerich, still there, but clearly there, there's a hierarchical shakeup that, that is brewing. So I, I don't necessarily think they're cleaning house, but it does sound as if a lot of the, the problematic people are, are gone at this point. You know, for a long time, you and I had said, you know, Ray, we need more, man. Like, you yeah. got to really yeah. sort of lay clear the scope of because while we want to believe you at a certain point, you have to you like to get the court of public opinion on your side. You have to give us something yeah. tangible to hold on to. He's now done that to such an extent that I'm going to believe anything he says now because they have Warner Bros has shown nothing to prove that like think about the way that they've handled the internal investigation right they've said that oh remedial action has been taken without ever laying out exactly what that was i mean just connecting the dots i don't know he, he was removed from the nevers you know of course they will never say this was the remedial action but yes that that is essentially what it was he was kicked off of his own show where do you think it goes from here then both like ray's specific gripes the whedon scandal and the DCEU as a whole. Do you think they just keep chugging along as is, or will this, I don't want to say change the way they're doing things because they would never do that, but will Fisher get what he's trying to find, which is ultimately justice, pun not intended? I, I think it's it's been always hazy what Ray Fisher's ultimate goal is. And I think it remains hazy still. You know, he seems to uh, uh, get things that he presumably wanted in terms of, okay, ju just Joss Whedon, has been removed from a project and he's still going. It's not exactly clear what his end game is. I just think moving forward, they're going to be far more cognizant of the character of the individuals they bring in to work on these projects. I think the, the central plan and the logistical world building of what comes next, you know, the flash is going to be a soft reboot. As we've talked about, it's going to pave the way for these future projects that have been announced in recent weeks and months. I think that's all still going to continue forward, but I do think they are going to be very reluctant to put themselves in another toxic situation. And that will in include further vetting of individuals and hopefully more self-accountability, more responsibility within the building, you know? And, and if that's all that comes from Ray Fisher's uh, claims and everything, that's still a good thing because he means he has provided positive impact for future employees in this space. Let's stick with Warner Media for a second because earlier this week they announced that HBO is planning a huge Game of Thrones anniversary this month to mark the 10th anniversary of the hit series premiere. So what they're doing is basically branding this as the Iron Anniversary, which 
just lends itself to so many jokes that I'm not even going to go there. So it's a, it's a pod for another time, just sheer comedy of that. But essentially, it's a month-long celebration to commemorate the series, engage passionate fans, and understandably, ignite audience excitement for the next iteration of the franchise because House of the Dragon is going to begin production this year. It's going to arrive in 2022. And on top of that, we have five other potential Game of Thrones prequel spinoffs in some form of development. So it's going to be really, really this huge blowout. HBO Max is going to have personalized curations, you know, binge watching marathons, special edition product products, a lot more. And, uh, you know, I got to say, I, I looked it up on Flix Patrol, which is a very handy dandy tool for anyone who, who's look, looking for kind of trending data. Game of Thrones is consistently the number one trending show on HBO Max and in TV Google searches. So as much as you and I hate the finale, as much as you and I agree that the last season was terrible, as much as you and I agree that pretty much the last two and a half seasons, there was some, there was some rough sledding at times it clearly hasn't affected like the long tail engagement of game of Thrones. People are still obsessed with the show, even if it left a sour taste in their mouth. First of all, I can't believe it's been 10 years. Right. Since, right. since it came out. That is where does time go? I actually remember where I was when I decided to start to watch. It was, Ooh. uh, it, it was the summer of 2015. And, um, like I had heard of you are five years delayed on game of thrones Eric holy shit because I was never like and as um you know I didn't watch all three lord of the rings until this past year I was never like a medieval fantasy guy um but game of thrones man you weren't in but why why did you start it first thing I was one of those snobby assholes who read the books. And so when HBO finally just ordered the series, I was like, oh my God, you guys are going to love this. It's great. None of my friends would listen to me until years later when it finally hit screens. And I finally convinced them to read the books too. So that's the thing. Like I had heard of it, but I had never really dove in. But then I, I just remember being in college. I was working a summer job and I was at a bar and I, and it was a Monday, right? And I feel like everybody in the bar was talking about Jon Snow's death. I kid you not. I was just sitting there and I could swear my roommates, people across the fucking bar, everybody in the place was talking about it. I was like, all right, I got to dive in now because I knew that he died, but it wasn't really a spoiler because everyone still knew he he would come back. So it's like, all right, word. And the point is, is that. The fact that I remember shit like that and then remember the next three years of watching with my friends week in and week out and engaging in the culture and all the enjoyable stuff that came with that show. I get that people are angry over how it went down, but I sort of want to get on a soapbox and tell these people that like, and especially since HBO is just bulldozing forward with game of thrones content like (laughs) like like if you're not sick of it now good luck because it's coming (laughs) hbo had never done a spinoff ever and now they have six (laughs) yeah exactly there you go that's fucking perfect way to put it so sorry point here is that you can't overlook the part you can't throw out the sum because of one of its parts right for a long time game of thrones was a revolutionary show. It was breaking records and norms. It was pushing boundaries and budgets. And now that they're rolling out this sort of 10-year parade and the new show is going to come out next year, I think now is the time 
for people to fucking drop that yeah. burden of hate and accept Thrones for what it was, which was, you know, a, a top 10 show of all time for a very long time and be, and allow yourself to re-engage with the likely very good content that's going to be coming out in the next few years. Just like Lost, a disappointing destination does not erase the unbelievable journey. Right, exactly. Lost is a great comp. Even though Thrones' is like levels are significantly higher, no offense, I know you're a big <laughs> Lost guy, but Game of... And I guess Lost was... Lost sort of laid the groundwork for Thrones, right? In, in, in terms of sort of the production scale of what a TV yeah. show could be. But... Thrones, well, like Lost was a, like Thrones was a worldwide phenomenon. I haven't seen anything like that before, and we still haven't seen it since, right? I mean, the last of the monoculture. Mando, Mando, maybe is that big of a deal? I'd say that could air apparent, but beyond that, Thrones was the type of thing where you could walk into a bar and half in that bar would be talking about it. So that's a cool origin story for your Thrones fandom. I like that. Yeah, and it sticks with me because I because yeah. I remember hearing about uh, the red red wedding and just being and like you know there were moments where yeah. the culture it would, it would swell to the top, but I never really like felt that, that I it was still sort of a low key hit, but that Jon Snow thing is what pushed it over and it became like a mainstream pop cultural sensation. All right, switching over from Warner Brothers, which uh, owns DC to disney which owns marvel we got our second loki trailer this week eric this show looks like it's having so much fucking fun this show looks like it just took a shot of bourbon chased it with a beer and maybe took a bong rip before going out that night you know like it just looks like it knows it's the coolest thing that's walking on planet earth at the moment. And I kind of like that swagger and that arrogant like yeah you guys are gonna pay attention to me i know it I think what plays into that is that the fact that the Loki we're getting here is very much not the reformed one that we ended with in Infinity War. This is still, so if this is a Avengers 2012 timeline, this is still pre-Thor the Dark World and pre-Ragnarok. So he hadn't gone through all that character growth. So he's more he's a villainous than we last saw him. Yeah, in, in Avengers 2012, um, they say he killed 80 people in three days. So he's a he's a mass exactly. murderer. He's fresh off of that, right? So that <laughs> is the Loki that we're dealing with here, you know? And I love that how he's going to have to sort of out-of-body download the other version of himself, you know? That's like, sad. they're, like, they're going to be like, oh, here's who you were. So he's going to have to cope with all that. But beyond that, we'll dive into that once the show comes out. Just based on the trailers and the construction of the plot alone, I don't think that this is a hot take of saying this looks like it's going to far and away be the best MCU Disney Plus series so far. And I think it's obvious because it's going to combine the sort of cerebral theorization of WandaVision with the sort of movie level action quality, if not a little more gnarly. We've seen Falcon is sort of very, uh, very popcorny and standard and like there's a good time at the theater whereas i think the action in loki may have a little more dramatic way to it maybe a little gorier maybe a little darker so i think that those that they're combining the best of the two shows that we've gotten so far into one with perhaps the most charismatic lead in a show that we've had yet 
you know, I'd say uh, Tom Hiddleston is probably maybe outside of Paul Bettany, but probably the best actor to lead one of these shows yet. So I'm big type. I am big hyped on this one. And it's the only one that has gotten a season two green light reportedly so far. Yeah. And Loki just lends himself to a little bit more of a dynamic, compelling presence than a Wanda, you know, a vision, a, a winter soldier or Falcon. So that'll be really fun to see. And as we ran here on Postcred Pod as an exclusive rumor, we are getting rumor. Yes, it's a rumor, but I think this last trailer lends more credence to it. We are getting some sort of introduction to Kang the Conqueror here in Loki before he shows up in Ant-Man 3. Now, we know Jonathan Majors has officially been cast as Kang. Kevin Feige confirmed that, and we reported here that that he most likely what we've been hearing, though, we, though it's not confirmed, is that some sort of introduction will take place in Loki. After the second trailer, I have a new theory. When Jonathan Majors was originally cast, Eric, the report itself said it could be with some sort of twist on the character, basically telling us don't expect the exact carbon copy of the comic book version of Kang the Conqueror, who is a time-traveling warlord who wants to basically dominate and take over Earth at different historical intervals. Here, there's a lot of Kang iconography throughout the trailer. You can see these statues and these kind of uh, uh, things in the background that allude to him. We know uh, Gugu's character is playing the love, most likely the love interest of Kang from the comics. I think the remixed version, because the MCU loves to remix comic elements to fit better within their universe, is going to have Kang, instead of trying to dominate different intervals of time, actually be dead set on preserving the timeline, potentially as the head authority at the TVA. I think that makes a ton of sense as to how to introduce him in a new, fresh way. It makes a ton of sense to make him a bit more of an anti-hero out than an outright villain. Makes a ton of sense if you want a multi-picture arc, which clearly they do between Loki and Ant-Man 3. And Loki, showrunner Michael Waldron, who cut his teeth on Rick and Morty, writer of Ant-Man 3, his name escapes me at the moment, but a writer on Rick and Morty who cut his teeth there. They not only know each other, but they have experience basically warping these sci-fi tropes and familiarities to their advantage, leveraging what we know about the genre to provide new and exciting wrinkles. So I think it all fits together for us to see Kang here in Loki and for him to have this varied backstory as compared to his comic book counterpart. Plus, to your point, and this is way too comic book fuckery for my brain, but he is also a founding member of the Young Avengers, which also gives the MCU more of an incentive to make him a good guy. Because as we've talked about yeah. and as everyone has talked about, they're obviously building towards a Young Avengers project. Ipso facto, that is obviously more geared towards young people. <laughs> Ipso facto, if they wanted Kang to be involved in that, I don't think he'd be an outright bad guy and would be something more of, I don't want to say a Logan-esque character. but Straddling that of, line. Yes. Um, a great theory I heard out there is that, so Kang is, he's like the ruler of a city called Chronopolis. And yeah, that- He's got a lot be, going on. That could be the Sid, the mini city that we saw in the quantum realm in Definitely. I love that. I love that. That yeah. would be great. Yeah. So, and in, and and in like, a lot of in, sorry, go. 
no, I'm just gonna say I, you know, between Loki and Kang and Ant Man and as you've talked about a lot on the show, this is a I can't believe you haven't wrote about this yet. How sort of the MCU is branching out into these three sort of uh, what's your whole spiel again? I always forget it. The time travel the it's mythic. Like the, the, the mystical, the cosmic, and something else, right? Well, I can't remember what I said. Well, this one is my, my favorite. Like the idea of like time travel and timelines and all that shit, that shit fascinates me. So I'm really glad that they're going to get get into that stuff big time. Me too. And in a lot of iterations in the comics, he is Nathaniel Richards, who is a descendant of Reed Richards and Sue Storm. And then he becomes King the Conqueror. So we got young Avengers connections. We got Loki and Ant-Man. We got Fantastic Four connections. So they can go in a lot of different directions with this character, which is great. Yeah. All right, staying with superheroes, but switching over to Netflix, we finally, finally, finally got a trailer for Jupiter's Legacy. And this is the first entry in Netflix's basically $1 billion purchase of Millar World, which is, yeah, it was a big budget purchase of Mark Millar, the famous comic writer behind Kick-Ass and um, Kingsman, basically his whole publishing company. So they got all of his IP and Jupiter's Legacy is the first series in what is going to be a shared cinematic universe of superhero material for Netflix. Now, the reason it's so long time coming is because first they had shot a couple episodes and basically gotten rid of the original showrunner. He had left over creative differences in the middle of productions. So that's a huge clusterfuck to deal with. Then the pandemic happened just to compound the clusterfuckery of what was going on. So basically, they've gotten no return on their investment for the Millar world thus far. So they kind of need, at this point, Jupiter's legacy to be a hit. My question for you, just regardless of what we thought of the trailer, do you think it's too late for Netflix to be getting into the shared cinematic universe game now that basically everyone has their own superhero-verse? It's a great question. The first thing that I think of here is that I think of the success of the Umbrella Academy and how that's sort of been a slow builder over time. I'm wondering if they still, if they have that sort of leeway here, given the price tag that they paid. Now, you telling me that they spent that much on the IP. It may not have been a billion, but it's a lot of money. Frustrates me because I will say that while I get that it's a Netflix show, if you're spending that much and you want this to be your primary shared cinematic superhero verse the show's got to look more expensive than that it it, there was something about it that looked cw-ish to me no shots at that channel or fans of them i just don't really enjoy those shows because of how aggressively old school tv-ish they are and that's the sort of vibe that i got got here now i love the concept it did look like it was going to be doing some different things in ter- definitely in terms of uh, sort of looking at the perspective of being heroes from an older generation. Usually it's, you know, about the young up and comers where outside of Watchmen, this is like having the fucking larger than life heroes still being around. Yeah. And I like that. Definitely talk about it on this show. What's interesting about Netflix is, and this will probably, I think this is the first Netflix show that we'll cover on this podcast. It drops all at once, right? So how does it, how does that lend itself? Especially if you want it to be your big ticket superhero content, how does having the conversation around your show only lasting three to seven days affect its growth? 
Really good point. And I agree with what you said in terms of the trailer. I think the visual effects and the makeup and hairstyling department, they're making some choices. Uh, some choices I'm not really loving, but the inherent story is very interesting. The very literal idea of larger than life legacy, the idea of inherited responsibility as children of superheroes that I'm interested in. So really pumped to dive into the screeners as well and talk about it with you, my man. Uh, how about another trailer? We got Batman, the long Halloween. Now to me, speaking of the visual effects, this looked like Archer animation to me, you know, Archer Bob's burgers type animation, which I didn't really like, but the story looked very good. And obviously I know from just cultural osmosis that it has a huge footprint in the comic world. Yeah. I would counter to your point about its visual style that it's sort of going for that gothic noir look that we grew up with, with Batman, the animated series, this style sort of lends itself to that. You look at that and it looks like Batman takes place in 1950. You slap that style on anything and it's automatically like 1949, you know? Um, this is arguably one, the best Batman story ever told. Certainly one of the most influential in the modern Batman world, i.e. the Dark Knight borrows a lot from this, particularly in the way that Harvey Dent becomes Dent. Robert Pattinson's The Batman is also going to be drawing from this, which I love because Pattinson's Batman is clearly going to lean into the darker aspects of Batman. And this story is perfect for that. I love that it's going to be rated R. Well, part two is part one is PG-13. What concerns me is that with both The Killing Joke and Hush, DC animation has taken some liberties with the story of course in that the killing joke there's that famous subplot that they added where bruce wayne fucks barbara just just don't do that the, you know just, just just stop just just out of the clear blue sky so maybe they'll do something like that here i'm hoping they've learned from they they did something like that and hush what exactly it was escapes me but the killing joke one was just and look i'm all for i like a Batman that has a love interest that makes him so much more human as opposed to this like Terminator like robot search and destroy nobody can stop me just when not he has somebody that, daughter what well but, but that makes him more complex right like oh dude's horny and he's making bad choices like that is what that makes him a more realistic character that said in the killing joke that's like so not the story for a fucking love subplot so We'll see. I'm, of course, big time hyped. Great voice cast. As we know, the DC weird subplots aside, these DC animated films are usually very good. So, yeah. All right. Now, lastly, we got our next trailer for Cruella comes out May 28th. You're big hyped for this. I am because, Eric, you know, most of the time, I think these Disney live action movies are about as lifeless and flavorless as you can get, especially in the instances where they're basically doing just shot for shot remakes of the original in live action. So I really, for the most part, couldn't care less about the live action Disney movies. This one though, I think looks like the most interesting of that bunch. It's got a defined point of view. It has a consistent kind of off kilter tone. It is clearly trying to skew towards an older demographic and not just be for like 11 year olds. And I think the creative team is phenomenal. You got Emma Stone, uh, an Academy Award winner. You've got the director of I, Tanya. You've got the writer of The Favorite. And then from makeup, 
hair, costuming, and editing, you have either Oscar winners or Oscar nominees. So of all the live action Disney movies, this one has the best, most talented creative team behind it. So I think this could actually kind of, I don't want to say break the curse because most of them have been billion dollar movies, but maybe be a high point, hopefully, for the Disney live action lane. Yeah, I mean, as I've said on this podcast, I think I could watch Emma Stone clean a drain pipe all day and be thoroughly entertained. So add in, as you just said, a heap of talent. Interesting IP. You know, I was was never a Dalmatians guy, really. Right. And I I was just going to say, I doubt there are like Cruella stands out there being like, God damn it, Disney, give me an origin story about Cruella DeVille, you know? So, but that said, when you get an Academy, a winning charismatic presence like Stone, clearly having a good time, can't lose. This is a Disney Plus premiere access. I believe it'll be the first, oh no, sorry, Mulan was, but Mulan didn't do all that well. Sure Mulan wasn't better. really Mulan didn't get a lot of domestic play just because of the state of theaters at that time. Yeah, but I'm saying yeah, yeah, yeah. But um uh right, right. But I I I meant didn't I don't think it did all that well on Disney Plus either. We we don't know exactly. So, you know, my early analysis was that it didn't do great, but they continue to do it with Raya, they're doing it with Black Widow and, and this. So it may have done better than like what the third party statistics initially said. I'm still waiting on Raya. I'm holding out. Yeah, that's fair. But I think when you do watch it, you'll be like, that was a good movie. But Cruella, I would consider buying. But that said, because I'm probably going to be going to the theater that day to see A Quiet Place too, I'll probably just run it back to back. Dude, I love I love a good twofer. <laughs> All right, let's run Have it you our- done that, really? I've never done that before. Uh, I did it when I was a kid. The, the one I remember, I did it twice, but I can't remember what the second one was. The first one was 1999. Me and my dad saw Charlie's Angels and Little Nicky back to back. It was awesome. Wow. What a fucking day with your dad. That it, is it was awesome. so great. Yeah, it was so much fun. So ever since then, I've definitely loved the, the double up when appropriate. That's a good, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's move on to our quick hitters. Uh, Warner Brothers and Legendary are reportedly still deciding on Dune release, whether it'll be theatrical only or whether it'd be both on HBO Max and theatrical. Do you have a preference, Eric? I don't understand how somebody could have a preference here. Why would you not be all for hybrid? If you want to go out and see it in theaters, great, go ahead. If you want to buy it at home, great, go ahead. I hope that this is the future. I hope that this is how it always is. We're going to be getting these 30, 45-day windows but hold on echo stop at one today so it was reminding me <laughs> makes sense i like that just just keep um, it in the pod people will be like ah oh, they're regular guys like us yeah the mets <laughs> baby even though it's three games in and they're fucking killing me already now where was i oh oh i think that this is the way that it should be going forward like let's say something when top gun comes out right and then i think it's going to hit paramount plus 45 days later. Do you technically count that as hybrid? What is that? No, that's theatrical first, then a shortened window to two. Okay. And then, okay. So then, and then hybrid is the same time. Yeah. Day and date. I don't have a preference. I think (laughs) I don't have a preference. How will you see Dune though? Dune? Yeah. How are you going to theaters? Oh, there we go. There we go. And that's, and that is what I'm talking about. When it comes to something like, like uh, the report from Variety just came out this week. Judas and the Black Messiah did really well. 
And that is the perfect type of film that's going to thrive in this. Oh, I'll watch this at home. Sure. Why not? Shit like Dune, Cruella sort of toes that line of, yeah, "Eh, I'll see how I'm feeling. Maybe I'll just buy it at home one night. But that's the point. You want choices, right? If I want to go see Dune on a big screen, I suggest that's what everyone does. But when it comes to smaller films like Judas or um, uh, Those Who Wish Me Dead, my 55-inch screen and soundbar does just fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I like choices. Personally, I'm going to go see Dune on the big screen as well, and I hope it's a good good time. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Godzilla vs. Kong has basically surpassed $300 million in two weeks. It is well on pace to surpassing Tenet's $363 million worldwide to become the most successful pandemic movie. Good. There you go. Um, <laughs> now, it has called, because of its success, it has called basically people online hashtag continue the monster verse which may not be possible because legendary was able to use godzilla and the godzilla characters because of an, a licensing agreement with toho and toho back in japan has already said multiple times they plan to start making their own godzilla movies once the monster verse was complete and now it is eric do you want to hashtag continue the monster verse with both Godzilla and King Kong? Or, you know, are you fine with let the MonsterVerse continuing with just King Kong, which it can, but Godzilla going back to uh, the Far East? If they could figure out a new Kong story to tell, I'd watch it. Am I particularly passionate about this franchise? No. Um, <laughs> no offense. I don't know how you could be. It's the definition of just like CGI mush. Yeah, um, I agree. But if they gave me, I, I liked the first Kong film, right? I thought Kong was the best part of this movie. Yep. So if they could find it, like, yo, have something arrive from space and have Kong fight him off. Sure, I'd watch that. hundred yeah. percent. But am I going to start to tweet about it? Probably not, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to hashtag continue the monster verse. If they make another one, I'll probably watch it, but I won't be sad if they don't as well. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Johnson and Daniel Craig each getting a hundred million in this Knives Out Netflix deal. Eric, what do you think? And just in general, what would you do if tomorrow you had a hundred million dollars? A couple things here. I've always said the the first thing you know. Everyone always does the cliche. Oh, the first thing I do if I want won the lottery is hire a accountant or some shit whatever all that stuff aside the first thing i'd do is take a trip like i wouldn't even quit my job because i really like my job but i would just take a break for a bit i've been watching a lot of yellowstone so and i would buy some land somewhere just to have it like i'm a city guy i like the city but in case shit got real whether it be zombies or like taxes or whatever just having a nice mountain range to go to would be sweet I think that's. I'm a, a simple man, idea. Brandon. <laughs> I'm a simple man. There's literally nothing Who wrong with that. Uh, so my <laughs> brother and I have been trying to win the lottery since I was five years old. It's something my brother and I, older brother and I, talk about often. And we also have a a ten plus year ongoing back and forth email chain where we send each other anything we come across that is like apocalypse bunker or like you know luxury like hidden like compound fortress so we literally talk about what we do if the apocalypse happened all the time so your thing about getting land and everything yeah i, I am 100 getting a zombie apocalypse compound fortress 
in remote well, areas. I just want to be clear. I would use it for things other than doomsday. Oh, oh yeah, I would too. But like I would vacation there. Time. I'd live there a little bit, but it would serve a multitude of purposes. For sure. Me too. But my first thought would be like, hey man, now that we have the money, want to build that safe haven for when the end of the world is definitely coming in our lifetime? And he'd be like, yeah. <laughs> Because we are some nihilistic, seen too many movies type of motherfuckers. I don't know, man. It feels like we're on pace. <laughs> second, second to that, I would go to Japan and have like authentic omakases for like an entire. Oh, week. Tokyo is one of the one of the. In spots. Kyoto, I want to go to badly. Is, the problem is, I don't know if I would survive that flight. <laughs> I, just, I don't think I could do it, dude. I, I mean, you know, I've I've been to multiple flights to Israel and and like a couple flights to South Africa and like you know you just you just pop a Xanax and sleep for like seven hours. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> we're we're not promoting drug abuse on this show, but we're just giving you a little guideline. Well, not on not China. not those drugs. The hit bongs theories are, are fine, but I don't consider marijuana much. a drug. It's a plant. Yeah. It's a plant, and we Speaking have to which, use it's it. It's legal now in your state. Congrats. I know. I've been celebrating. Fuck yeah. yeah. I've been celebrating. Out. All right, we may be getting a Shang-Chi trailer soon, though this is completely conjecture. Marvel tweeted out that the cast was going to join up for like this group talk, you know, as they do these kind of virtual promotional events, then deleted the tweet. So the rumor Really? Sphere, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so the rumor sphere's gone into hyperdrive with like, well, they wouldn't be doing that if it wasn't going to be kind of a trailer drop soon. And it makes sense since Shang-Chi is still scheduled to come out before Eternals. We got to be September getting a trailer. 3rd. Soon. They got to drop a trailer, dude. Are you kidding? Exactly. So, you know, we may be getting a Shang-Chi trailer soon. And Do I'm excited. Do we think it'll be a 10? Ta- Do we think that there is going to be a post credit scene in something that comes out before then that links to that film? Because we have gotten no Shang-Chi MCU ties so far. And that's sort of very unlike them. Who knows? I mean, maybe the end of Falcon and Winter Soldier, maybe Black Widow, despite the timeline disparity. Something could be for sure. Do you think the first trailer comes out with Loki, like at the same time? I think it's very possible. I think it could come out with Black Widow, you know, in 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 July 9th. July? It, that's less wow. late too. But I, I think it's got it's got to come soon. It has to come in the nearest future, or else I don't really know what you're doing, marketing department. So right. we're gonna get it soon. Uh, James Gunn has confirmed that Guardians of the Galaxy three has begun filming. What's your hype levels for this, given everything that's gone down over the last last few years? What do you mean? I mean, we had, you know, the James Gunn firing, the James Gunn rehiring. We had Guardians of the Galaxy appearances and other uh, projects. We had the pandemic delay, the whole MCU timeline. Like this was well, this movie you make was a great point. You make a great point. It's going to be interesting to see how Thor 4 sets them up because that's yeah. going to be the next time that we see them. As I've said a thousand times, Guardians 1 is my favorite MCU film. Guardians 2 for me is a massive step down from that. If Guardians 3 could land somewhere in between there, I'd be stoked. I definitely am psyched for it. This will probably probably be the last Guardians film. Gunn obviously has showed in both Guardians 1 and 2 that he can tap into sentimentality very well. So you you got to imagine he's going to be laying that on thick in 3, which is something that I quite enjoy. So yeah, I, I'd say my hype is about at a, an 8 rocket fake arms in his closet. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm pretty hyped for it. I, I even though Guardians of the Galaxy two was a step down, that Yondu death scene, man, God, that was good. If you compare the Yondu death scene and, and not compare, combine the Yondu death scene with the scene in Guardians one where Groot does the We Are Groot. I mean, he know he yeah. knows 
more so than most of these very carbon copy, shallow superhero films, how to tap into something that could ring out a tear or two. Yeah. So you got to crying at any other be- point to the MCU. Well, no, I think uh, WandaVision got me pretty good. <laughs> um, um, yeah, you know, hyped for sure. Uh, Atlanta season three has officially started production. I mean, Jesus, finally, like years after yep. season two. So happy about that. Cannot wait. One of the what's, best shows What's on great is that now, now these guys are all like confirmed A-list stars. Like season two, they were sort of, they were there. Like people like you and I knew about the whole cast, but not sort of the general space. Now these guys are all fucking studs. So I cannot wait. Dude, Lakeith Stanfield has got a shaved blonde head from the set photos. So we already know they're going to be doing some crazy shit. Yeah, it's going to be great. All right, well, that is the trending news. There's a lot to talk about this week. You know, busier week than recent weeks. It really seems like Hollywood's picking back up. They were just dropping trailers, news, trailers. It's crazy. I've Speaking of rumors... I've been seeing one out there. Now, this is this is a rumor, right? Take this with Is this a hits gravity bong rumor? Yes, yes, yes. But it's one of those ones that's so daft, it makes sense. (laughs) It sounds ridiculous just saying it, but I've seen it. I I saw the Luminarity post about it, and I saw it somewhere else. That a Sam Raimi Spider-Man 4 could happen after Doctor Strange 2. That's something I've read. Again, that's a big fat hits. Gravity bomb. Dude, I saw I, I saw this video this week of Wiz Khalifa hitting two of them at once. It's just like, Jesus. dude, who needs that much? That would get me know. uncomfortably high. But I would be all in on that, right? Talk about a redemption story for the <laughs> fucking ages. Like letting him do that would be glorious. Do I expect that to happen? Absolutely not. Who would says I be, no, though? Would I be the first in line to see that? If it does, of course I would. Course Who I says would. no, though? I, I think probably Sony. I think they make a lot of money because I, I think it then undercuts a little bit what they're trying to do with the Tom Holland Spider-Man verse. But they should. I, I would love it, dude. Of course I would. From a business standpoint, I can understand why they don't want so many live-action Spider-Man running around at once after what is probably going to be a very crazy, hard-to-swallow multiverse movie in December. But True. I obviously want it. And there are ways to make it work. I'm not saying it's it's not impossible, but that'll be tough. Imagine that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, if if they do, of course, I'm first in line, like immediately. For sure. All right, let's jump into the Falcon and Winter Soldier because this was a big episode. All right, Eric, this was an interesting episode, and I know I say that every week, but every week for the most part, it is true. And I think this one had well, well, I, I, I you know, I found myself thinking that interesting is an interesting word for you to use because is it that I found that. The discussion around the series is nowhere near as fervent as it was with WandaVision. That's very much by the design of the show. I'm sure it's as big of a hit in terms of numbers, but in terms of the conversation, I would say we're at, I don't know, 30% of the excitement that we were at when it came to WandaVision. The general fan passion or desire to engage further in the conversation around this show seems to be extremely weakened. That makes sense. And and I can see that, like you said, by design. But when I say interesting, it's less so the kind of greater conversation surrounding it and more so, I would say, the implications and thematic messages that are 
being developed by the MCU as a whole, you know? And I think each yeah. product is a microcosm of that. So that's what I mean by interesting. Right. Okay. Fair enough. But you're totally right that by design, this is just a more straightforward, simpler show. So our beat by beat recaps, I like because it's a little bit less theorization and a little bit more filmic analysis. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. So let's hop into it. This episode, we open with Bucky, the white wolf in Wakanda six years earlier. A nice little flashback. Io is repeating the winter soldier code words, you know, homecoming, like das bidas, all that good stuff. But Bucky's able to resist it. And at the end of her little spiel, he's still Bucky. He's not the winter soldier. And Io tells him he's free. And Eric, to me, I found a through line here. WandaVision traversed reality through decade-specific pop culture. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier traverses reality by hopping into different pockets across the globe. You know, so far we've been to Madripoor, you know, we've been to Latvia, all these different places. Now we're here at Wakanda, and each time we get a little snippet of culture from that region, from that area, what they represent. And I just think that's an effective, cool tool. And there's something great just about globetrotting mechanics. Especially especially when you contrast that with a character with the name Captain America running around doing whatever the hell he wants. So that's a nice little blend there. Absolutely. I really like that. So from there, Barnes back in uh, wherever the kind of hideout for uh, Zemo is, Barnes persuades Io to allow him and Wilson to continue to work with Zemo. And so she gives them basically eight hours to finish their mission before the Dora Milaje are coming for these guys. Uh, she also reveals that it was the Wakandans who removed the Winter Soldier program from him with, quote, time, will, and resources. And she basically says that because she's trying to argue against his argument that Zemo is a means to an end, that he is essentially a shortcut to trying to accomplish their mission and Eric, I, I think we agree on this because I think I saw this in your notes, but ever since Civil War, to me, the Wakandans have occupied this, this rare mystified air that imbues their presence with a sense of importance. You know, they are the most advanced nation in the world. So for their nation to be represented in the flesh in any storyline means that the matter is of grave significance. And so seeing her there... It just adds an element of holy shit to the whole proceeding. Yeah, I think the Wakanda inclusion has upped my interest in the show in one way, because I think, again, it provided another example of, I think, Stan doing some strong work. I think his reactionary shots to him sort of reliving his past as he tries to resist this code was good work. There's no lines for him to say there, really. He's just, that's all facial expression so i think that's good there i also think right as we both said you said importance i wrote down here it imbues them with gravity as soon as they show up you're like shit's real now like someone's in fucking trouble <laughs> you like 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 so, like this is not like you y'all are y'all are in trouble now they're the know? great so, equalizer and that is when she says you have eight hours to do this you better believe you have eight hours to do this or they're showing up at your front doorstep. Like they're rolling up. And taking what they need. <laughs> and like you believe them. And the fact that the MCU has done that in what is a very interchangeable, you know, like 
at the end of the day, right, all of the heroes, they fight their battles and they win. They all sort of, you know, Cap carries that weight for being super moral. Thor carries that weight for being a god. But beyond that, none of them really carried that, what you said, that sense of mystique and just like authority. When they show up on screen, it's fucking business time. Business time, I think, is the best term for it. And I just think moving forward, every time Wakanda is involved in any story for Marvel, we just gotta be like, business time. Business, yeah, because that's like what that. it is. And then that yeah. fucking that drum beat kicks in, doo, 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 mm. doo, 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 and you're just mm. like, yup, let's go, yup. God, Ryan Coogler's the man. And I think this is just a, a, a small snippet example of Marvel using their interconnected world building to its advantage. It is so cool to see this. Uh, this sliver of this amazing culture that we love from a different project appear here. So that's great. From yeah. there, the trio are arguing in their hideout some more about how the serum corrupts everyone but Steve Rogers, about the Flag Smasher's morality, and in general, the power dynamics between the three of them. Uh, Sam then makes contact with Sharon while Carly retrieves the super soldier serum from a graveyard. Eric, I like this because similar to the private jet scene that we talked about in previous episodes from earlier this season, this scene is all about conflicting viewpoints. Yes, they we are, are on the same page so much right now. Let's go. go I ahead. love it, man. But like, yes, they are nominally arguing about the obstacles at hand. You know, the who, the what, the when, where, why, and how of their mission. But really, what they're talking about, what they're discussing is ideology and revealing the perspectives and worldviews that drive them individually. And I love when you can take what's at hand and use it as a double meaning for what the characters believe. And I think that is done really well here. Yeah, so I wrote that we're on the one. <coughs> Speaking of that cough, signed up for my first shot Monday, baby. Let's go. I'm getting mine Saturday. Let's go. It's going to be a weird summer. Um, <laughs> Post-cred pot is out here. Yeah, I'm getting fucking weird this summer. Fair warning to everybody out there. Uh, Well-deserved weirdness, all right? Yeah, seriously. So what I wrote down is, and again, I didn't even think about the plane scene comp. Great call. I enjoy the shifting perspectives of the audience of the three of them, right? We're seeing how the three of them feel about one certain topic. And then their individual perspective changing in real time. Sam, you know, Sam is tracking them down, but then he's also like, you know, Buck, I kind of see their point. Bucky then says, you know, Carly's means to an end make her too extreme if she keeps going like this she's like zemo zemo's like whoa i didn't super soldier anybody <laughs> so you got dynamics shifting in real time both how they're personally we're being put in a perspective of third person of seeing how they all interact despite their opposing viewpoints and first person of how their individual perspective is changing in the moment. And I think that shit's great. Yeah, because it directs their choices and their actions and behavior. And we and understand why. And that's the strength of Zemo, right? He's a cerebral villain. That's what he, he's sort of a, yes, watching Magneto, Ben Metal is dope, but his best scenes are when he's just fucking laying down that old school German knowledge, right? Yeah, so for sure. that's sort of, that's sort of the Zemo. It's the same thing with Joker. Yes, he could blow up buildings all the live long day, but it's when he talks that you're the most enthralled. 
we're getting that with Zemo. It's no Thanos or fucking scrolls or any of this extreme comic bookness as comic bookness as you said why you prefer the civil war zemo as he felt more realistic i think that the more eccentric version makes him feel more realistic because he's able to like put aside his previous hate for them now and like have these sort of discussions with them while also very clearly planning his own <laughs> his own way out so I think that imbuing him with a little more less overt edge and willing to see eye to eye with his fellow man while he tries to accomplish his goals is one of the strengths of this show. In general, his character is. I wrote down, where would this show be without him? Both in terms of plotting, right? Like he's like, Bucky and Sam, we got to go here and do this. And then we got to go here and do that. (laughs) They're a lost puppy without him. Or in terms of general entertainment. He went viral immediately, and now we're talking about how he is a conduit for these sort of in-depth hero versus villain discussions, which is something Marvel has lacked in general. So I think when this season is all said and done, he'll wind up, unless something drastic happens, he'll probably wind up being our MVP. He's the only arrogant asshole of the series that I actually want to hear pontificate. You know, going back to your, your Magneto laying down the wall verbally type of comparison. Like nobody yeah. else. I, I don't really want to hear anybody else monologue in this show besides Zemo. Right, right. And because as you said last week, he is just acting circles around the yeah. entire cast. But while I did enjoy that one part of the scene, one thing that I did not love was, and I'm willing to guarantee that you feel the same way. It's in these scenes that this show sort of feels like two different shows that were stitched together. The Flag Smashers and Sharon Carter and the Power Broker are all supposed to be related, yet they all feel wildly distant and disconnected to the extent where I think Sharon Carter and Madripoor and the power broker may just be a backdoor into something else. Because at this point, Shang-Chi, perhaps, I'm going to get into that next. Because speaking of of Sharon, she said, and because doesn't it like they're, they seem like they're trying to tie the two plot lines but don't they feel very this episode to, to me hammered home this exact point that i like the falcon winter soldier but it has an identity crisis not only for what you're saying which is right on the money in terms of the the physical okay now we're at this shot in this part in this part it does feel very uh kind of all over the place but i also think thematically it's a bit scattered you know it started off what i said in the early episodes which i really liked you know, a, a black public figure's place in America and how we treat that person. That's gone now. now. Yeah, exactly. Now, and I, and <laughs> I wrote a piece on Observer for, uh, about this today. I think this has a, a this episode has a wonderful, important thematic question to ask about the nature of heroism, which we'll get to in a second. But that is a completely different thing than what it was earlier. So I think for multiple reasons, both the literal and a bit more of the thematic metaphorical, it, it has an identity crisis, the, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. It doesn't know exactly what it wants to be. So then just further on that Sharon thing and how I think that the Madripoor and Power Broker, that the Power Broker is not the real villain of this show. The ultimate villain of this show is Walker, right? Maybe. I think that, I think that Sharon and the Power 
broker thing could be an entrance into, you know, they've said that this series is going to tie into at least three other MCU projects. I don't know if we've gotten one yet. I mean, unless you count the Wakandans as a Black Panther to connect. Do we count Don Cheadle as Armor Wars? Yeah, right. So exactly. So, so, so she says, quote, Magipore is about to get real nasty because the power broker is angry that they killed the golden goose in Dr. Nagel. Perhaps the power broker is really the Mandarin and him sort of raising hell in Magipore is what sort of gets Shang-Chi going. Yo, I like that. I haven't heard that out there. I like that. Oh, dude, that could 100% be the real Mandarin. I like that a lot. I like that. Yeah, a lot. because I don't. I, I, I and and the, what theory. led me down that path is I was like, all right, this feels like a backdoor pilot to something else. It does. She's like, she's like, hey, uh, Sam, shit's about to get real crazy over here. I wonder what's gonna happen. Who's gonna save us from the evil power broker? And the Mandarin was somebody who, at least the fake version of him, was known for his sort of guerrilla warfare esque tactics. Given this pirate city. Those two are very conducive for one another. So that's my shout right now. That that the the that the Majapur plotline, dude. Like I said, Shang Chi comes out. This was originally supposed to come out in August, right? Yeah. Shang Chi was supposed to come out that following February. So take that original six month timeline into account. We, as I said during our our news part, I think Marvel still hasn't hinted at the Shang-Chi world. And that's very unlike them. This is the closest thing that we've gotten to that. I think that's a great theory. I'm like, now that you say it, it feels like everything's kind of clicked into place and I love it. I also just regardless of who the power broker was. I said the hand, how their sign is the hand. So, you know, there's a lot going on there. I think I think that could definitely turn out to be true. I hadn't heard that one before, but I really like that theory. And like, you know, during our news section, I was like, oh yeah, that's Sam Raimi. That's bullshit probably. Like I'll push back if I think it's bullshit. That I really fucking like. But yeah, I, I thought regardless you, of you. who the power broker is, it was just so funny to me that Sharon was like, he's really pissed that they killed his golden goose. I'm like, if he was a golden goose, then why didn't he have a single security guard with him in the most crime-ridden city in the world? I never understood that. I'm like, yeah. oh, just because he's got a hidden lab? Like, the most sophisticated crime syndicate city in the world can't find him. Protect your assets, guys. Come on. What, what, what are we doing Big out facts. here? Baby squad Big shit. Facts. All right. With Zemo's help, they finally track Carly to a memorial service, but are intercepted by John Walker and Lamar Hoskins. Wilson asks to speak with Carly alone in attempts to persuade her to kind of change her methods. He kind of tries to reason with her. And they do make a little bit of progress towards finding some common ground. But of course, Mr. Uh, what, what, what do we name him? What did you name him? Mr. Douchebag Face or something? Oh, the... Walker. Brothers Douchebag. Yeah, yeah, the Brothers Douchebag. Walker specifically intervenes before Sam can kind of close the deal. And this leads to an all-out punch-em-up fight. In, in that whole kind of dust-up, Zemo shoots Carly, forcing her to drop the vials of Super Soldier Serum, which he then proceeds to smash, which because, you know, for all of the inconsistency of the Falcon and Winter Soldier. Our man Zemo has been consistent from day one. He's been consistent from 2016 Civil War. This guy knows what he's about. Uh, Walker stops Zemo, then retrieves a single remaining vial Why Carly ex- escapes. So there was a lot going on here, Eric. Can I, can I do a little rant quickly? Go ahead. So 
what we mentioned just now about how it's a little bit inconsistent thematically, that is true. But I still do like the separate themes they're hitting. And I think this episode is very important in that regard. Uh, the whole world is watching, and, I, and this is kind of paraphrased from my piece for Observer today, basically asks what the role of a superhero truly is in these increasingly complicated times. Eric, is it a superhero's job within the MCU to represent the best of us, to put forth a symbol of idealism and lead by infallible example? Or is it a hero's job to save lives plain and simple? Because as we've seen, and particularly in this show, in this episode, often the two actually are mutually exclusive. I think you can argue that Sam's mercy and leniency in this episode costs lives. And you can also argue that the Flag Smashers are undeserving of that mercy as they've become murderers. But I think you can also say uh, at the same time, if we don't put forth an example and try to take the high road, then we are simply trapping ourselves in the same repetitive toxic cycle that has defined conflict for all of human history. So there is no simple answer to big question. And I just like that this episode essentially questions the nature of heroism and what a hero should be and how they should come to that decision. I think it is arguably the MCU's most important question. And I think raising it represents a very refreshing sense of self-reflection from the Falcon and Winter Soldier, despite some of the flaws we have been hitting on, that it gets points for. But I, I was impressed with that element of this episode a lot. That do you think that 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 what you that, that that what you just said legitimizes the flag smasher subplot because it's gotten us to that point? I think that's a great question that I actually didn't consider until you just raised that. It's a great question. I still feel as if the weakest parts of this episode and the season have been the momentum killing flag smasher side plots. Again, like I said last week, I appreciate that Morgan Spellman, the uh, Malcolm Spellman, the uh, showrunner is attempting to make a sympathetic villain, which we always, you know, clown Marvel for not having. It's just not working here. So while you're right, and keeping with the themes of this episode, it is a means to an end thematically. It's still not great. I will say that I'm impressed by the actress, Erin Kellyman. She's only 22. She's good. She's really young. So my major takeaway from this portion which is when john walker shows up as i need better than john walker is just a raging prick to sort of explain why he does the things that he does i have a theory on what that could be and that sort of touches on how we are crediting this show for delving into heavy themes such as american race relations and american foreign military tactics and shit like that so, but they haven't really hammered it home yet. They touched on it at the end here. I'll get to that. That's my theory. But as of right now, in this moment, when he just shows up and he's like, what the fuck are you guys doing? What are you doing here? Like, just just being a dick for no reason. It's not good enough for me yet. You know? Why, Eric is doing his why, great why, little dance to be like, I'm alpha male John Walker. I wish you could see it. It's, it's making your point stronger for um, sure. Um, Wyatt Russell is doing really good work. I think he's like, he's doing a great job of this sort of hyper aggressive, very off the hinges sort of performance. But I don't think the writing has done justice enough to explain his sort of psyche thus far beyond sort of trying to overcompensate because of the pressure he feels of being capped. 
It's a fair point. I, I'm excited to get to the end to, to, to expand a little bit more on the Walker arc. And now, why do I need that? Why do I need a further explanation on how this guy acts besides the fact that he's just a douchebag? Because the government handed him the, the, the mantle of Captain America, and this dude is clearly off the rails. He doesn't even hide it. Like, did they not realize that they just hired Patrick fucking Bateman? What? I, I just don't <laughs> I just don't understand how he got the job. And I think unless that turns into a subplot that he was handed the job for nefarious reasons, the lack of mental background check that they did on the new cap is shocking, like just absolutely shocking. So all of those pieces aren't quite fitting for me yet. I do love the fighting. I I, I thought that the action in this episode was the best yet. What's Everything that? is fluid and and easily comprehensible it feels way more legitimate that than anything that happens in the final battle versus thanos which is great for its spectacle but not for its actual tactile feel you know it's it's not like you're really invested in every punch and kick you're invested in the story here i really like the last battle with in endgame with with cap and 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 thor and everyone i i I thought that was pretty good but i get what you're saying this the the fight choreography here is great yeah, it's just more, it just feels more lived in. Sure. Like, oh, that punch looked like it fucking hurt, you know? <laughs> Shit like that. Especially these punk-ass so, yeah, those, humans. Uh, right, I'm, I'm excited right. to, to get to the end of the episode so we can, I, I want to expand on your John Walker thoughts because I think it's a really important element of the whole show. But from here, Io and the Dora Milaje, they come for Zemo. And when they come, they come correct, all right? They are not fooling around. Walker, of course, refuses to hand him over and immediately it erupts into a brawl, which reminded me in that moment of a mini civil war because Zemo per- surveys the chaos that he is basically unleashed and then escapes, which was just hilarious. Uh, Morgan just Thal- in classic like villain slowly step away from the crime scene. Like, okay, that's my cue. <laughs> like I was like, laugh out loud hilarious. You know, I thought that was great. Yeah. Uh, Carly then uh, uses Sam's sister to invite him to a meeting and attempt to persuade him to join her cause, which I'm sorry, that's just some dumb villain shit. But the meeting is interrupted when Walker attacks other members of the Flag Smashers. And Eric, first of all, I just loved, I loved how the Dora Milaje take him out so easily. And he's all like, they weren't even super soldiers, man. Oh, no. I'm like, yeah, that's what you get. That's what you get. Yes, I have here. Despite what it leads to, I definitely enjoyed John Walker realizing the crushing weight of the knowledge that he's completely useless. Yeah, yeah, that's that's well said. I I really like that. And then again, just the Wakandans just carry such weight. It's just electric. There's only three of them against Avengers, and they lay the fucking smack down. Also, like, Johnny boy, you don't know who you're messing with. Like, stop strutting. Don't be, like, pointy things and, like, let me touch you without you giving me permission to. Like, come on, dude. Like, just for regular adults. Do your fucking homework, dude. Do your fucking homework. But let's just say they're not essentially political envoys of different nations and they were just random people on the street like adults don't act like that that way or shouldn't act that way this guy's just a fucking moron all right during the ensuing fight carly kills lamar hoskins or seemingly kills him it definitely looks like that to us enraged by his friend's death walker then kills a flag smasher with the shield 
horrifically in front of a horrified crowd, all of whom are filming on their cell phones. All right, Eric, Walker is clearly, clearly, like you've been saying, unstable and unfit to be Captain America. He, he also took the so- super soldier serum. So we also know that he does have a lust for power regardless of motivation. Uh, and that flag smasher specifically, he yielded. He could have been taken into custody and questioned. But in a vacuum, Eric, in a vacuum, he Walker killed a known and active member of a terrorist organization that just killed a U.S. operative and his best friend. Without the cameras present, if we had just read that in the New York Times or something, I have a feeling we would be okay with that, given just the raw facts. Essentially, a good man who takes the super soldier of serum can do good. It's a different version of Bucky's it's the means to an end rationale. And John Walker is clearly unstable, but I understand a good man a good man wanting power to help. At the same time, I also understand Zemo's point. A desire to become a superhuman cannot be separated from supremacist ideals. It's the same reason why Jon Snow in Game of Thrones was the right choice for the throne, precisely because he didn't want it. Those that do not lust after power are most suited to wield it. At the end of the day, I hope, and and this comes back to a little bit of what you were saying, I hope they continue to leave Walker in this morally ambiguous state as this unclear foil. Because I think ultimately what we're seeing is someone who is unstable and unfit to be Captain America, but someone who's also a guy that at the end of the day, even if he lost for power, is trying to do the right thing, failing to do the right thing, succumbing to his flaws. And I hope that ultimately allows him to work through it all to be a better man or or a guy whose journey is coming to his own conclusions about the nature of heroism. That all is interesting to me. I don't want them to splinter out and be like, he is a flat out villain, bad guy. Well, perhaps this is what leads him to becoming a sort of more morally ambiguous U.S. agent. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Instead of Captain America. Because this is sort of his, and this is sort of his, comic book story is that he snapped and like killed a bunch of people or something oh i i think this last 10 15 minute set piece was the best in the show so far it reminded me of the raid 2 how it was sort of a chase stop and fight somewhere chase again through like city <laughs> yeah, streets and warehouses sure. and people are crashing through walls and shit really enjoyed that i liked the suddenness and the simplicity of battlestar's death it's a reminder of how different the playing field is for regular people. Like he just got punched in the chest and got absolutely yeeted, you know? So it it just reminds you of the stakes, the level that these guys are really playing at. This is the big leagues, you know, like you forget, you know, as much as people might want to, you know, not dunk on Sam, but it's like, all right, Falcon, cool, man. You've got some wings on. Which, by the way, why isn't the government like producing more of those? Why aren't there like a whole squadron of Falcons? I don't get that. Like you can train other people to learn it. Like I guess yeah. I bet I get that Sam's nice with it, but other people can be too. With it, but it just sort of shows that he's just he's more than a dude in a suit, right? He knows what he's doing. Like that hasn't he hasn't gotten a hole punched in his chest yet, and that <laughs> and that speaks for something. So, totally. um, as I said before, does this set up to be John Walker of the real villain of this show and the power broker? Magipore storyline to be a tie into something else. I don't know. And then my final thoughts was, could they have gotten this done in a film? 
would people have gone to see that film? I don't know, but something about the pacing just makes me feel like this was intentionally stretched out to be a show when it could have just been a film. I don't, I don't know if people are coming out on max for the Falcon Winter Soldier movie. Yeah, I think there's a reason why it's a show. Of course, of course, of course. But where where do you fall ultimately on what you want to see from the John Walker arc? Like, do you want to see him go full villain and be the, the not fuck the power broker? This guy's the true bad guy. Or do you want to see a little bit more of that U.S. agent? Like, wow, this guy's, you know, figuring shit out. Interesting. That's a great I, question. I feel like this is one of the most important subplots of the whole show. Well, uh, to jump ahead a, a bit, my Tony Stark monologue award, a.k.a. the Star-Lord Who Award, is the next episode simply has to start with Bucky and Sam trying to subdue him, right? Like, there's no way you just let that shit fly. I, I don't mean, see- but aren't they technically also on the run since they broke out Zemo? Like, I understand morally they should, but they, they don't have right authority. There. They're but standing they don't right have there. authority. They're criminals right now. How like does the government like ah you got the other if bad guys? I was writing you. if I was writing this show, I would have next week be a fucking fight. Just just start off with them immediately. Because they're standing right there and just watch Captain America murder somebody with Steve's yeah. shield. That in, shot with the blood on it was great. In cold blood. So I don't know how Bucky, especially considering everything he said about that shield up until this point, how he doesn't snap and go after him, how Sam, with the knowledge that, not the proof, but the idea that Walker took the serum, he's like, when, when he sees him bend that pipe, he's like, what did you do? Regardless of their criminals or not, at the end of the day, Brandon, they're heroes. And that's what, <laughs> and that's what a hero would do, right? They got to stop this sure. fucking guy right now. This is a, this is a deranged super soldier running around with Steve Shield. We got to stop this man right now. I could see John Walker winning that fight. Who knows? But like, I don't know how they get around that. Plotting wise, they just go their own ways. All right, John, uh, we'll clean up this body here. We'll see you next week. Well, if we're speaking on the shield too right now, I want to come back to what Carly said. She says that Steve Rogers' shield is a monument to a bygone era. To me, she's wrong. And to paraphrase WandaVision, to me, his shield represents good persevering throughout history. I mean, by his own admission, Cap did what was necessary in World War II. You know, he sacrificed bits of his soul for the harsh realities of battle and war. But he's also never strayed from his ideals or compromised his values. You know, he was the only hero, back to my question of of what it means to be a superhero in the MCU, he was the only one to both save lives and stand as an incorruptible symbol. Everyone else has struggled to do both. And I think Sam is learning that in this episode and in this series as a whole. So I think like you're right. The 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 represent the representative meaning of the shield needs to be reckoned with here. I just think Carly's opinion is flat out wrong. Yeah. So and just to touch on what what you asked me, where do I want them to take it from here? I I mean I just have a hard time seeing a a, a road back for him at this point. I don't think I, you know. He killed somebody horrifically, but if there's no cameras there to see how horrific it is, he did kill a known terrorist. Yeah, so this, so I think the most likely is perhaps that once they get the shield back, which they oddly showed in the trailers and given how 
late that reveal is coming. I'm not sure why they did. That's very unlike Marvel. You know what I mean? That's yeah. going to come in either the pen ultimate or the final one. When usually when we were talking about WandaVision, everything in the trailers was front loaded. So yeah. I could see him giving up the mantle of Cap and becoming a more morally ambiguous, doing the dirty work U.S. agent. It'll be interesting to see. And with two episodes to go, they're clearly going to need to wrap this up quickly. Yeah. All right, let's move into our awards and categories. The Infinity Gauntlet Award for the real MVP. I'm going to say showrunner Malcolm Spellman. It hasn't always been Have pretty. you said that every week? No, I, I, don't, I think I had some different ones. Oh, okay. I mean, if I haven't, listeners, you guys can fact check me. But then, <laughs> you know, at least I'm consistent. Like Zemo, I'm very consistent. I don't stray. True. But uh, it hasn't always been pretty. The series definitely drags in places and has some identity issues, like we said. But even if it's a little scattershot, I like that he's tackling weighty topics. So respect. For me, and this is where I'm going to get into my point, John Walker. Ooh, um, you, you, you can't stand him, but that is by design. So it's a testament to both the writing and acting. And while I need more of a tangible explanation on his general state of mind, I think the manner in which he slips into true villainy is believable. He's simply trying to do the right thing. He has the massive pressure and weight of trying to fill the shield of Cap. And everybody laughs him off at every turn. Despite the fact that he's just trying to help. He may be rough around the edges, but this man is a war hero who has sacrificed for his country and is trying to uphold an, an unfillable mantle. And nobody seems to want his help. And so I could understand then losing your best friend in the battle against the very people you're trying to stop when people who are supposedly on your side are laughing at you when you try to offer a helping hand. I could see how that enrages somebody. And in that moment when he loses Lamar and he runs up to him and he's like, Lamar, get up, get up. It harkened very much to what I would imagine it would be like to lose your friend in war. I cannot speak to that whatsoever, but given that he was a soldier, that is what I think that they were hinting at, that this isn't a superhero death. This is the death of a soldier in right. battle. And that maybe he is the way that he is because he has PTSD. And that just like that they're delving into themes of politics and race and war, that PTSD is going to be one of those, i.e. how they discuss his medals and how he seems to have regret over there, them quote unquote, awarding him for what he considers the worst day of his life. That was a great conversation. And how those feel and how those feel like an ever present reminder of the worst experience he's ever lived. So that I think really adds further real world weight and reason to his behavior. But if you're not somebody like me, not to again, blow smoke up our own ass, but if you're not analyzing this stuff for your job, I don't think they've made that subplot up to this point explicitly clear because either right now I see two roads, either a, they aren't doing a good enough job of explaining why he's unhinged or B that they're trying to have it be a PTSD thing, but haven't hammered it home enough for it to be clear. Have you noticed too, throughout the the season from his first appearance at the end of the pilot, his beard growth is growing as he becomes a little bit more unhinged as he becomes more Wyatt Russell. And it's also like the the costume is just ever slightly so ill fitting. So it, yeah. you know, I'm just curious because they because because especially because of that line about how he sees his medals, you combine that with the pressure of trying to be cap and being laughed off by the very 
by the people who he wants to consider his peers. He wants to be in the cool kid table with Sam and Bucky. Of course he does. So all that shit combined with the trauma of war, that to me would make for a compelling character as a whole and would make sense of sort of his unpredictable rash ways. I think that's a great segue to our Thor The Dark World Award for Worst Performance because I am going with John Walker as a suitable replacement for Captain America, echoing much of what you just said. He's unfit and unstable as a Captain America, but as someone who has explicitly said, and in that conversation about Afghanistan, talked about how many more lives they could save with the super soldier serum. Yes, he may have a lust for power himself and want to be taken seriously and have personal demons that he's wrestling with. But I think overall, we've seen someone who is a likable-ish dick, who's now clearly gone far away from likable, who, who is trying to do the right thing at the end of the day, but he is struggling to figure out how to do, do so as the mantle of Captain America. If he was US agent, if he was freed from the shackles of expectations and the world's public eye trained on him constantly and perhaps had a little bit more support from those around him, maybe he wouldn't be so as schizophrenic to us. You know, maybe he'd be like, all right, this guy is aggressive and kind of a prick, but he's getting the job done. So that's why I like his arc. And I think your criticisms are valid, but I'm definitely feeling this kind of secondary storyline about finding your own path in this weird super heroic mcu world yeah but you're you're assuming that they're casting him as an anti-hero which i that's not the vibe i've gotten they're not i i don't think they're setting him up to be redeemed whatsoever i don't know i mean i i also think if that's the case then why suggest over and over that he does just want to do the job of protecting people that he does want to give the American public an ideal to strive for that. He is just trying to save lives. Yeah, maybe. Okay. I think he's a prick and he's clearly unhinged and he needs to, you know, hit the bench for a couple plays, (laughs) but do you think he's an outright evil person? Uh, The serum could change him. I I think what Lamar said was really spot on. The power just reveals who you really are. And I think, yeah, so, but if that's, if, if that's somebody who could cave a man's skull in with a shield in public, then fuck that was that. a bad move. That And that clearly is part of his unhinged nature. But again, I do come back to in a vacuum. He did just kill a terrorist who's a terrorist. Yeah. yeah fair. Like if like if a cop shot Ted Bundy to, to keep him from escaping, would you have a problem with that? I, I just don't think that that's a fair comp. All right. Well, what's your Thor the Dark World award? Oh, none. I think there's just solid work all around this week all right then the jarvis award for best performance by anyone except the lead actor daniel Brühl. every time yep same guys pulling strings like a puppet master i love it the tony stark exposition slash monologue award aka the star lord who award for stuff that we need to explain to us uh what do you think the government superhero costume budget is because they had to do all new costumes for Battlestar and this new Captain America. Like you said, it's kind of ill-fitting on John Walker. Battlestar is probably out of the pictures. They need a replacement now. Like, how much money money are they funneling into the tactical gear here? Battlestars look pretty cheap, man. I don't know. I mean, it's supposed to be like, you know, weapons-grade quality, but clearly can't prevent your chest from caving in. Yeah, dude got done by one right cross. 
I said this before. I'm going with, I think next week has to start with Bucky and Sam trying to subdue Walker. I just don't see how you could like witness that happen and, and do anything but stop him. Like, where do you see this going next? I think it had, I hope literally it comes back. like, like they pick right. Like where do those three characters go from there? Are you talking about like to start the next episode? In terms of the story, what is the next move that those three characters make? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right in that the conflict comes to a head, but we also now need to resolve Flag Smashers, and we still are waiting, presumably, for the other shoe to drop with Zemo and whatever his overarching plan is. So there's a lot to do. uh, Bucky has been threatening, I'm going to take that shield from him myself. And what better time to do it than when he just used it to chop someone's head off in cold blood? So I think the next episode, you're right, could probably be like, enough of this shit. And Sam's like, Buck, no. And he just runs in. That would be fucking electric. Like that, I, really, I would like that. Yeah. I, and, that would give, and that would give Bucky a proper hero moment, right? That could, <laughs> that could, because they did throw in that subplot, or not even subplot, but this is sort of why the show feels very disjointed. They made a point to make us see that he was being filmed when he was raising all that hell in magic war so perhaps him being filmed taking down the deranged cap will help balance that out a bit social media modern world everyone's got a phone uh (laughs) Uh, the time stone that real quick award aka the rewind that real quick I think this scene with Bucky swirling some good whiskey while they all philosophize about about the world, great scene. Also really like that, like, you know me, I'm not a huge Sebastian Stan fan, but for once in the MCU, Bucky's a character and not just like Steve's accomplice or or, or like emotional anchor or anything like that. That's a testament to Stan's work then, no? He was good in this episode. He was good in this episode, for sure. I don't. I I think he's looking he's, strong, John. I thought that, that was great. Great line. Great line. Yeah, I, yeah. I actually in a Slack to my editor today likened him to the respectable veteran journeyman in the NBA who's not great and who's on like nine teams in eight. JJ Redick. I, I think JJ Redick is actually a little bit higher than Sebastian uh, Stan in my in my regard. But uh, he was good in this episode. This was a great episode for, um, for sure. I've got two quotes. I didn't write them down. One was. Shield or no shield, the only thing you're running here is your mouth. And the other one was the Dora Milaje's jurisdiction is wherever they find themselves. Just like, again, just like, uh, I believe you, ma'am. I am so sorry that I offended you. Please forgive me. Like, yo, they are badass, man. From here on, hashtag business time. Wakanda, that's what they mean. It's hashtag business time. Uh, put this in Odin's Vault Award, a.k.a. put that in a museum to build off what you just said, the Dora Milaje close quarters combat. They neutralized this team of like four in seconds. Yeah, Great. I have the set pieces as a whole. This one, the Dora Milaje, and then the one that I said was like the Raid 2. That was really cool. Yeah. All right, the Cap Lifts the Hammer Award for the best hero moment. Uh, again, you know that I'm not a huge fan of all the Flag Smasher stuff. And I think Sam is being naive to a certain degree, but I'm giving the award to his conversation with Carly because at least he is trying to do something different. He's trying to break a cycle of violence that humanity has been locked in for eons. And I can appreciate and respect that, even if it sometimes is naive. It's a really good call. I once again have the Dora Milaje just showing up and laying the fucking smack down. 
I mean, how nice was that pinpoint accurate spear throw to lock the shield yeah. into the table? So sick. That's did it cool. go? Did it pierce the shield? Is that? What I don't think. No, I think I think she purposely threw it through the loops on the hand, to, and that, which is hard to do from an accuracy standpoint. Yeah. That was some Robin Hood shit. Yeah. All right. What's the worst thing you can say about this episode, Eric? None. I don't got oh, any wow. this week. Yeah. Uh, for me, it drags. It spends too much time on the uncompelling group of villains. Its focus is split. But what is the nicest thing you can say about this episode, Eric? Uh, I I think this is the best one yet. Uh, and that's because of the set pieces, as I've been saying. And I thought the John Walker turn, especially with they use what borderline on like a horror film score for some scenes here. I thought that shit was really strong. For me, I would say that this episode reckons with consequences to a certain degree, which as anyone who listened last week knows that I was complaining about for the MCU. And I think what I said before, it poses the question of what a hero should be in this complicated contemporary time. It is not just swoop in with the cape, pose for the cameras and bounce. There is a lot more to it and a lot more, there's a lot more to weigh before making any decision if you are going to be a public hero. And I think that's interesting. All right, stuff we think is cool that needs mentioning. I don't have anything this week, do you? I've got a great one. The guy that Walker kills at the end is the one who said he used to look up to Cap as a kid. And he dies literally looking up to Cap. That, that's a good one. Damn. Well played. Well, a tip of the cap to you on that one, Eric. Mm-hmm. And with that? With that, guys, if you like, please subscribe. Uh, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And please follow us on Twitter, at PostCredPod. We always love to hear your thoughts, your comments, your theories, or if you just have straight-up complaints, you can at us as well. We probably won't answer. No, but, you know. send, those, send those directly to Brandon. Please. At Great Caspi. He's our uh, Great PR underscore Right. There you go. There you go. All right, y'all. Peace. Until next week. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. <laughs>